All right, somewhere within arm's reach is a Bible. Would you grab it and open it up with me? We're on page 401 today, Nehemiah chapter 5, working through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, maybe you grabbed a bulletin, it's printed in there, this text. We're going to look beyond what was uh, read just a few moments ago. Again, page 401, Nehemiah chapter 5. And while you're turning there, let me show you this picture. Depiction of the Continental Army encamped at Valley Forge outside the city of Philadelphia in the winter of 1777. Their clothing was threadbare, blankets were hard to come by, there were men on the front lines of battle who chose to stay up all night rather than risk freezing to death at night. The French general Marquis de Lafayette was traveling among the ranks at this time in his journal he recorded that he saw men on the front lines who had injuries and wounds at the risk of amputation who were considering abandoning their brothers and returning back home it's a very difficult situation but not because of the temperature it was actually a very mild winter that year in 1777 outside the city of Philadelphia. The problem was that nearby merchants refused to sell to their own brothers blankets and supplies at interest rates less than and profits of margin less than a thousand percent. Can you believe that? All the way up to 1800 percent was their markup. And in chapter 5 of Nehemiah today, what we find is something very similar. There are brothers and sisters who are refusing to be generous to people in their own extended family. You got your Bible open. Let's start reading in verse 1. There arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brothers, their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. I mean, you gotta eat to live, right? Doesn't sound like a big deal, but let's keep reading how dire this situation is. Verse three, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Can you imagine that? They've gotta take out a loan just to pay their bills. Verse four, there are those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved to us, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. You see how the dominoes are falling here. Not just this whole thing about mortgaging and taking out extra loans, but also their own children are enslaved. Uh, now, Nehemiah says this, verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother. This time in the Persian Empire, it wasn't uncommon for interest rates on loans to be somewhere between 40% and 50%. And I held a great assembly against them. Big problem inside the city of 
Jerusalem. This is happening among their own people. Remember, Nehemiah is their leader, and Nehemiah was the guy who was the cupbearer to the king of Persia at the height of his earning potential. He leaves the highest position that any Jewish person could ever attain in a foreign nation and travels to Jerusalem to help them rebuild the walls. They're about halfway built at this point. The temple's already been built. Let's step back. What do we learn here? I mean, what, why is this important to us today? Stuff about interest, loans, and slavery. I and mean, what does any of that have to do with us today? Well, there's something very practical and something very personal. Practically speaking, for the people of Israel, they're faced with a choice. Either they can continue to rebuild the walls and go further into debt, or they can leave their brothers and sisters and return home and the walls don't get built, and if the walls don't get built, practically speaking, maybe none of us are here today. But personally, there's something much deeper at stake here. Nehemiah is asking them the same question that we need to answer today. How can we be people who are more generous? There's a longing in each of our hearts to be people who give more freely and, and not just out of compulsion but people who are generous and kind and maybe some of you say well I already am and I give and I give generously and I, I do something sacrificial and maybe some of you say well I don't give sacrificially but I, and I can't give financially but I can serve and that's what I can do I like to say you always know who your friends are when it's time for you to move because <laughs> for each of us there's a limit and we draw a box around what we do. We pat ourselves on the shoulder and say, you know, I'm doing this. But there's a limit. And I'll do this, but I'm not going to do that. That's too much. And I'll give this, maybe this amount, but I'm, but I'm not going to give that because that's too much. What, what's behind that? That's our question today. How can we be people who are more generous? And to get there, we've got to look at the deeper reasons why we give in the first place. So first, for some of us, it's a matter of giving so that God will give to us. You know, there's that story or the kind of that phrase we say, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And that's, you can say the same thing when it comes to giving. You know, God gives to those who give to him. Maybe you, you recognize this guy right here. You know who this is? This is Benny Hinn. And Benny Hinn is a man who's traveled around the world for 40 years in large groups of people that he's preached in front of and people who he's laid hands on who have been miraculously healed. He has that gift, it seems, and he has been preaching what's known as the prosperity gospel. Are you familiar with that term? It means that essentially this, that God wants us to be happy and that God wants us to be healthy and he wants us to be wealthy in Benny Hinn's case, often the prosperity gospel and the people that he's healed and the requests that he's made in front of large groups of people have been to receive his teaching and to receive his healing if you give him $19.95 a month. If you give to God, he'll give to you the prosperity 
gospel. And there there's, seems to be, in very small parts of Scripture, if you read them in isolation, a biblical case for this. So here's what God is saying through the prophet Malachi in chapter 3. It says this, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. This is God speaking again. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until you have no more need. If you give to God, God says, test me and I will bless you. If you give to God, he will give to you. But let's flip that around, because if that is true, what about the reverse? What if you stop giving? What if you don't give? Does that mean that you don't deserve God's blessing, that he won't give it to you? Or perhaps, even worse, take away what we have. Verse 9 is a difficult verse to wrestle with. Let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah's brought all the leaders and officials together, and he says this. So I said, the thing that you were doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? The fear of our God. What about that? If you don't give, does that mean that God will do something to you? Because that sounds intimidating. To try to give out of fear what God might give or do to you. What about that? Uh, what about the taunts of the enemies of the Israel, the nations around them? Because what's at stake here is the, how the people of Israel are going to, how they're going to deal with the choice that's before them. They're watching. What they do matters. And this is very important for us today, too. The people around us who may not set foot in a room like this, what we do with the things of God matters. When you go out to lunch after church in your church clothes, your servers know where you've been, and they know what kind of person you are based on the number that you write when you tip at the bottom of your bill. My wife Jackie was a server for years. Ask any server, the last day that you want to work of any of the seven days, if you've been a server, is what? Anybody in the room? Sunday. But for that matter, maybe that's just a micro level, but, but on a larger level, the way that we're generous not just with our gifts, but with our time, which is a gift too. And the way that we invite people into our lives, the people who wouldn't normally step foot in this room, the people around us, they're watching. That's largely what Jesus is talking about in the gospel lesson that we heard a few moments ago where he says you're a city on a hill, a light that can't be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine. Verse 13. Because it gets worse. Yeah, like, 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 like we're already not even scared enough. Okay, verse 13, top of the second column. I also, again, this is Nehemiah speaking, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise so he may be shaken out and emptied. This is what's called sort of a, an 
enacted parable, the fold of his garment. This is uh, at this time, there were like pockets in the robes that the people wear. And Nehemiah is saying sort of prophetically and physically, what I'm doing now, may God do to us if we're not generous with the things that we have. He shakes out his garments. Look how the people respond. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. We know at our heart of hearts there's a better way. Uh, there's a story that I heard someone tell a while ago about a gardener who was renting a field from a king, grew a large carrot, gave it to the king and said, O king, this is the largest carrot I've ever grown and the largest carrot I ever will grow. I want you to have it as a token of appreciation of my honor and respect for you. The king said, thank you. And he turned to the gardener and said, I'll tell you what, I'd like you to have not just the land that you've been renting from me, it's yours, but also the surrounding fields next to it. And the gardener turned and went his way. There was a nobleman who was listening to this conversation, standing in the courts nearby, and he said to himself, if that's what he can get for a carrot... I wonder what I can get for a horse. And so he came to the king and he said, O king, this is the finest horse that I've ever bred or ever will breed. And I want you to have it as a token of my appreciation for my honor and respect for you are great. And the king took the finest horse that the nobleman had ever bred and he led it away and said, thank you very much. The nobleman chased him down the hall and he said oh king I saw what you gave to the gardener for the carrot what about me and for my horse as he held out his hands in exasperation and the king said to the nobleman yes you're right but he was giving the carrot to me and you were giving the horse to yourself Because if we're giving to get something from God, we're not giving to God, we're really giving to ourselves. If we're giving to avoid some sort of punishment out of fear of what God might do for us, we're not giving to God, we're really giving to ourselves. And I think deep down we all know that there's a better way, a better reason to be generous with the things that God has given us, not just our finances, but also with our time. And I gotta tell you, that as I've prepared this sermon, I've been thinking about me and my life, I've had to reconsider my own motivations and the depth to which I am generous, because there are thoughts that creep into our heads sometimes, wondering if I gotta do this because God says so, and I don't, I know, maybe he'll bless me, and if, if I don't do this, maybe something will happen. I mean, those thoughts creep into our heads sometimes, right? There's gotta be a better way to give. Not for ourselves, that's the first reason, but secondly, to give because that's what God says, because that's his command. And you can't help but read the Old Testament. And that's what we've been doing so far through this year here at Our Father. You can jump online and follow along with us, the reading plan, the devotional videos that are happening. Right now we're in the book of Psalms. But you can't read the Old Testament without finding all over this place this word tithe. It means tenth. It goes all the way back to the first family to Adam and Eve and Cain 
and their son Abel, different guy than this guy right here. I know that was like funnier in my head than it sounded out loud, but look, you just gotta keep going, Nate. Just, just power through it, I know. Book of Leviticus, fast forward, chapter 25. God commands his people to be generous and says, don't charge interest from one another. In fact, forgive any debt that you have every seven years. Not biblical, this thing. And then he goes forward and you go all the way to the New Testament. Jesus talks about money more than any other thing that he preaches or teaches on. You know, there's this phrase that we like uh, that's in the New Testament. Uh, this phrase, God loves a cheerful giver, comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Starts like this, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I have a friend of mine, a number of years ago, who said to me, well, I don't feel very cheerful when I give, so therefore I must not have to give. <laughs> uh, well, so there's a part of every human heart that resists being told to do something because we have to. We want to do things because we want to do them. We do them because we want to, I guess what I'm trying to say. Not because somebody tells us to do that. I mean, if, if you only did it because God says so, and it's throughout the Old and the New Testaments, and if you did it whether it was under compulsion or not, what would result was that you would only be doing it because somebody else said so, and that might help you on the outside, but it would never change you on the inside. There's got to be a better way, not simply to give for our own benefit and not simply because God says so and because we ought to do what he says, and that matters, but how can we be the kind of people who give not simply out of duty, but that our duty changes to delight. And for that, we've got to look back to Nehemiah. I hope you still have your Bible open. Let's read and continue beyond where our text ended today in verse 14. Nehemiah, remember, he's the governor of this region, and he goes first. He says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah... From the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. He's about to show us how much he's entitled to, what is rightfully his, and he's going to show us that he goes willingly without the things that he deserves. Verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. There's that phrase again. Verse 16, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Here's what Nehemiah doesn't say. He doesn't say on one side, the wealthiest have earned it and they deserve to keep it. And what he doesn't say on the other side is that the 1% have an obligation to share what they have. 
He doesn't say either one of those two things. What he says is that let's forgive the debts of, of, that we owe one another. Let's just forgive those things. And by the way, this whole time, for years and years and years, I've been the kind of person who doesn't take the things that I deserve. He's the guy who left the capital city in Susa, the highest position that he could ever be in, and now he's the president of the Homeowners Association in the dusty town of Jerusalem. He says, that's enough for me, I'm okay. What an example. I was standing here three weeks ago yesterday, and 25 members of my family were in the first three rows of the pews on this side, table right here, bouquet of flowers, and a framed picture of my grandpa Fred. We called him Granddad. He died at the beginning of May, and when my dad and my mom were dating, they were in college in Nebraska, and they traveled to Atlanta, where my grandparents lived, on my mom's side, and Uh, went with them down to Orlando where my grandparents had a place to stay with some friends of theirs and my dad and my mom one day when they were down in Orlando borrowed my grandpa Fred's van my grandpa's dad Foster Apple uh, my mom that was her maiden name they would get prank phone calls all the time like hello it's Mrs. Grape there you know hang up (laughs) the Apple family So my great-grandpa Foster worked for the Ford Motor Company in Henry, Kentucky, and managed the coal mines that powered the factories in Detroit. And he got a brand new car every single year. And this year, he gave to my grandpa, his son, the brand new car that he got. Again, it's a Ford van, the Econoline, remember those? And my mom and my dad borrowed it to go to the beach one day. They went to the beach for the day, drove back, and on their way back, they stopped for dinner and got out of the car, went into the restaurant, went back out to the car, and as my dad was pulling out of the parking lot, he backed right into a palm tree. (laughs) And he's driving home, rehearsing the speech that he's going to make to my grandpa when he gets back, but uh, my grandpa and my grandma are still out with their friends that night, and so he goes to sleep on the couch, and morning comes, he's the first one out of bed, and ready to kind of check out the damage in the light of morning, and there is my grandpa Fred with a cup of coffee in his hand, waiting for him, staring at the bumper. (laughs) (laughs) And before my dad could get a word of apology out of his mouth... Grandpa Fred said to him, Spencer, look, it's okay. I want you to know that I'm going to take care of this. And there's nothing I can say that's going to make you feel any better. And anything I might try to say would probably only make you feel worse. And we're going to put this on my insurance. and We'll figure it out. You don't owe me a thing because I'm going to take care of it. So, fast forward 20 years later, and I'm in college. (laughs) 
And it's Christmas break, and I want to go see the girl that I was dating at the time. My parents were living in St. Louis. She lived in Kansas City, and so I didn't have a car, and it's like New Year's, and I said to my dad, look, could I borrow the minivan? And he said, I'm not really sure, because there's a big storm that's coming, and I said, I think it's going to be okay, and I went out there, drove across I-70, spent the night on the couch, drove back, and as I got to Columbia, which is about halfway across the state, some of you know the stretch of highway I'm talking about, a storm comes up, sure enough, and I can't see beyond the front bumper to like the first row of chairs here. It's snowing that hard, and I got 90 minutes on a good day that's like three hours tonight. As I'm driving down, I get to our exit off of I-70 from where my parents lived and headed home, and hit a patch of ice, the car spins two times around, and the front right bumper crashes into a guardrail. And like, the the front tire is like at a 45 degree angle. I didn't have a phone, and somehow, I got to a gas station nearby, and called my dad, and said, Dad, you were right. I shouldn't have made this trip. I crashed the van. I'm really sorry. I can remember the long pause on the other end of the phone. It seemed like an eternity to me. And he said, Nate, it's okay. I'm going to take care of it. And he drove out. Somehow, We got the car home, and he never said another word. I think it's one thing to have someone like Nehemiah as a model, as an example, or to have a family member, somebody in our own story, a a friend, to look at their life, what a model of generosity and kindness and goodness. It's one thing to see someone who's been generous to someone else. It's a whole other thing altogether to have someone who is generous to you. Do you see, my friends, the one who on the cross looked at your sin and said, I'll take care of it. Who rose from the grave, the empty tomb it is now, and is taking care of death for you. The one who left his position, his wealth behind, who was rich, who became poor, and and gladly took far less than what he deserves so that you forever could have far more. And who didn't just do that historically in the past, who in the present day gives you his daily bread, everything you need till your head hits the pillow tonight. How Can your heart move from duty to delight?
If you remember, Jesus on the cross, sure, Jesus on his knees in the garden of, of Gethsemane, you remember, it's, it's not just duty. You know, we might say, oh, it's easy for Jesus. No, he's on his knees saying, it feels like duty, saying, God, take this cup from me. I don't want to go to the cross, but if your will be done, then I'll do it. You know, it seems like uh, duty. It seems like outward compliance. How does it move from duty to delight for Jesus when he on the cross sees you in this seat today? He sees all your sin. He's delighted to give himself for you when he rises from the grave and looks forward to the day when he will pick you up into his arms. He says, you are enough and my delight is in you today. From duty to delight. That's what Paul's talking about. Let's close here very quickly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says this. as He's encouraging the people of Corinth, a city in Greece near Sparta. He says this. I say this, he's encouraging them to excel in what he calls the grace of giving, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, my friends, when you see how poor you are, poor in spirit and how little you deserve and when you see Jesus Christ who deserved everything and all of creation and willingly gave it up in his riches for your sake became poor so that you in his poverty in his weakness in his suffering so that you might become strong so that you might be rich in grace and abundantly provided for far more than you ever deserve when you see jesus on the cross then your stuff will be just stuff and you won't give for your own benefit or give to avoid punishment from a God that you need to be afraid of. And you won't give simply because God says so out of duty. You will give freely of yourself. And more, beyond what you may build is a boundary around what you think is too much. Because you have one who gave his life for you. You have one who is delighted that you belong to him. You'll always have enough, and you will always be enough in the eyes of the one, Jesus Christ, whose delight is in you. In the name of Jesus, crucified for you and for me. Amen.